0: Okay, um... Hello. (laughs) We have a weird recording set up today, because I forgot my uh,
1: charger at work, and so we are doing this a bit different. And it's also a, a Live from New York episode, so feeling a bit awkward and different, you know, how it is. Yeah, I honestly cannot remember the last
0: time we recorded a Live from New York. I think it was... Before I moved out of Steve's. Oh my god! To be perfectly honest, yeah. So, I could be wrong about that, but that's my recollection. So,
1: it's been a while. Yeah, we Um, thought it was going to be part six today, but actually, we've already posted that. Take a look, you guys. (laughs) Take a listen, if you will. It's a two-parter, apparently. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I'm Gilda. And I'm Steph, and this is Saturday Night High, the podcast where we get high and talk about Saturday Night Live. Yeah, and so we're
0: covering part seven of Live from New York, which is Politica, and covers the years 2002 to 2008.
1: Yeah, this chapter, I guess, um, started out by saying that this was the period right after Will Ferrell left, so they were kind of trying to find, you know, their new identity, and all the politics of that era definitely, you know, helped Oh, no, absolutely.
0: I mean, good God, we had the last four Bush years, or last six Bush years, rather. And uh, this, the end of this era was when I started watching it live. So this is exciting for me because this is the stuff that, you know, I remember watching the first time around. We kick this section off with uh, Tracy Morgan, who apparently got away with calling Lorne Michaels his bitch backstage. A joke that Michaels found amusing. Wait, I don't even see where that was. What? Literally page one. It's, like, in the
1: first italicized paragraph. Oh, no way. (laughs) And Michael's liked it. Good for him. You know, gotta laugh sometimes. Another big part of this uh, era
0: was, obviously, the presidential impressions. um, With Daryl Hammond, uh, his Bill Clinton... They talk about, like, Lauren Michaels says Daryl inhabits characters. His Bill Clinton is Bill Clinton. He had the same power that Dana had with George Bush. And in the same way, when you saw Clinton, you couldn't not think of Daryl. And I find this interesting because they go into a bit in this section how SNL is so ingrained in American culture that you see Bill Clinton, you think of Daryl Hammond. You see Daryl Hammond and you're like, oh yeah, it's Bill Clinton. So you kind of start not confusing the two, but like you take the what you've seen on Saturday Night Live and you start to be like, yeah, that was a pretty good impression. So you assume the political figure is like that too. And I think they kind of humanized Trump in the later years, kind of like that, because people were like, oh yeah, he's a fuddly, you know, funny duddy old guy. And he's dumb, but they didn't exactly you can't
1: portray dangerous through well, you can, but <laughs> would maybe not go over that great with NBC execs. No. Unfortunately. Um, but yeah, at the end of this chapter, they were talking about like the whole Sarah Palin Tina Fey dynamic, and that was something that like it was one of the first things I remember in my memory about SNL because that was kind of an age where I was like, aware of what was going on politically and also like able to laugh at things like that um yeah so yeah this was a period that really stuck out for me and um this was also when will forte who just hosted um he was bush and he did not even want to be bush i do
0: not remember him As George Bush, so that is interesting, but again, that was slightly before I started watching. Yeah, Uh, they talked about Lindsay Lohan hosting, and she's like, Oh, it's a really good energy there, the whole building, it's nice to be around people that are excited to do what they do. And then on the next page, we have Horatio Sands, who is embroiled in kind of a scandal right now about maybe potentially, like, grooming underage SNL fans and using... His, it's him and Jimmy Fallon, and Jimmy Fallon has managed to stay the fuck away from it, but... Yeah, so he's in a bit of hot water with that, but he's literally quoted after oh, Lindsay yeah. Lohan's quote... This ...saying, yeah, Lindsay was so hot at the time, like, quote-unquote, hot in both hot physically and hot in her career. She was pretty young,
1: too. Ew! Yeah. He was talking about being very fun and kind of naughty. It's just not something that I think would fly today. Like, maybe in 2002, 2003, people could get away with saying things like that. But at least today, we're past that. We're not past a lot of things, but we're past that, I think.
0: (laughs) I mean, fuck, Machine Gun Kelly's coming under massive fire right now for his gross-ass comments about Kendall Jenner when she was, like, 16, 17, and people are digging up, like, his past comments where he's like, oh, she's so hot. Hey, I'm only 19. It's fine. No, dude, you're talking about a 13-year-old girl. That wasn't Kendall Jenner. That was a different girl, but still.
1: Yeah, that's actually fascinating to me. Sorry to get a little distracted, but I didn't know that Machine Gun Kelly was going through this controversy. The only headline I've seen about him today was um, Times Megan Fox called Machine Gun Kelly Daddy. That was the only headline I've seen about him. So I don't know what side of, you know, (laughs) the internet I've... Falling into? Falling into? <laughs> I, I don't know. All I know is, like,
0: part of me finds Machine Gun Kelly and Megan Fox so ridiculous over the top. Yeah. And at the same time, they seem so happy. And I'm like, you know what? It, like, if you're happy, I can't hold that against you. No. <laughs> this was... Uh, the Lindsay Lohan episode is also the famed Debbie Downer. It had the Debbie Downer sketch. And uh, Paula Pell says the best scenario ever for people like me who write characters a lot for SNL is to just find the character that every person watching has in their life. We all have a fucking Debbie Downer that is just like okay.
1: Yeah, sometimes I fear it might be me. Um, but there were a lot of like iconic sketches from this period. It was just like there
0: really were every
1: the page. They were talking about something just absolutely iconic.
0: Yeah! Uh, the, literally, the next page is about the Christopher Walken cowbell sketch. And Christopher Walken said, "'A few years after I had done the cowbell sketch, I did a play on Broadway, and people brought cowbells to the theater and banged them at curtain call and at the stage door, and people had special pens asking me if I would sign their cowbell.' Will Farrell says, "'I went to see Walken in a play a few years ago,' And I went backstage after to say hello. He was talking about the fact that people would bang cowbells at him. He had a wide smile on his face and said, you know, you've ruined my career. Which, obviously, with the wide smile, he's not upset, but I thought that was funny, because we can all hear Christopher Walken saying that.
1: Right. Um, Then we go into a few pages about how Lauren totally, like, became the king of late-night television.
0: Yeah, this, uh... Him and Jimmy Fallon were, like, intertwined in the next few pages, and we all know that I'm not the biggest Jimmy Fallon fan. But uh, I said he originally wanted to leave after five years because John Belushi only did five years, and in my head I wanted to be John Belushi. And I'm like, yeah, that checks. and I have a little eye roll drawn next to my notes because this is what I still took notes writing on an iPad. But Lauren became king in this time. He was the first person to put two women on the update desk, saying to Tina Fey after, because Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Fey, nope, Jimmy (laughs) Fallon, um, was initially the choice for Weekend Update, and Lauren said after Jimmy left, I think the way it came down, or Jimmy Fallon was on Weekend Update with Tina Fey, and Jimmy left. Lauren says, I think you should consider Amy because we've never done two women and I think you'd get along great. You'll have a different kind of thing. I'd spent enough time around the two of them to know it would be fun. And this was completely the correct call because yes. this update era, I... <sighs> Amy Poehler on update was... Watching her do her thing was so good. And then Seth Myers came in as her second. And the teaming of Seth and Amy... My
1: favorite. Before they, you know, chose Amy, uh, Tina was sort of given a little bit of a choice in whether or not she was even going to choose somebody. And she did ultimately decide to go to Amy. And it was described in a really sweet way. She equates it to a marriage proposal going to Amy and being like, I would like you to please be my comedy partner. And then Amy Poehler also calls them comedy wives, which is just, that's accurate.
0: (laughs) It is, and you can tell they have a bond, and um, this was a big moment for Amy Polder because uh, she says, I remember when we were talking about Update, Lauren said to me, everything kind of changes once you look into the camera and say your own name, and that, I mean, she says that's very true, because, you know, yes, you're introduced in the credits, but once you are that focal, like, once you're... Once you have so many eyes on you in the middle of the show, like everyone's going to know who the fuck you are week
1: to week. Yeah, and for both those names to be female names, that was, like, big. Yeah. But I think women in that time were really just taking over the... Not taking over the show. (laughs) No, but women's
0: roles shifted. Yeah, you're completely correct. Um, Because you went from... you, You went from having it be a 90s male-dominated cast with the Farrells and Chris Farley and Adam Sandler and Tim Meadows. You had, you know, the main people you saw week-to-week were men with a few women peppered in. And then you have... Uh, Tina Fey says An easy example is Not that these sketches hold up in any way We used to write Laurie Nasso And I used to write these parodies of The View And some of the men would say What is this? Is this a real thing? I go, yeah, it's a thing And at least it's a chance for all the women cast to get out and then it played, and they were like, oh, okay. They weren't adamantly against it. And so I think by that time, Molly and Anna and Sherry, and again, you know, talk about stars. You cannot say that Sherry Terry and Molly Shannon were not huge stars at SNL. You had Paula Pell. You had Laurie Nasso, You had Cindy Caponera. And you had more women in the room. By the time Maya and Kristen and Amy and Dratch got there, they didn't have to do the side work of proving that it made sense for them to be on. They just came in. They killed at the table. They had confidence, and they got their stuff on.
1: That just shows the importance of having women in, you know, equal positions of men.
0: Absolutely. Because, you know, the Tina Fey and whatnot, not that Jane Curtin and Laurie Newman and Gilda didn't do their part, but at that point, I, it wasn't, I don't want to say it was token female casting, but it kind of was. Although Gilda was, I believe,
1: the first person cast for the show. So... <sighs> It felt like they were just there to play, like, wives on, like...
0: Exactly! They were there to fill the roles of the sketches that were really being headlined by your John Belushi's and Chevy Chase's. With people like Tina Fey and Anna Gasteyer and Maya Rudolph, they're doing the work to prove, okay, you're here, and then once the, once it can be, once it's proven... Not that it should have to be, but once it's proven that women can succeed on the show, it's much easier for the future women for future women to come in and make their mark because um, it's already... The, the road's been paved. The glass
1: ceiling's been broken. I'm glad it has because I love the talk show sketches.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, we get into Bill Hader and Andy Sandberg and Bill Hader uh, talks about his interview process or his audition process and he was performing in a sketch group in a backyard in Van Nuys and I think that's how you say that. Uh, Megan Mullally saw me because her brother-in-law was in the group. She says, "Hey, you're really funny." A couple weeks later she called me. she said, "I just had dinner with Lauren Michaels. I recommended he see you for the show because I think you're really funny and they're looking for people like you. Can you imagine just meeting Megan Mullally and then having her be like, "Hey, Lord, hire this guy. And that's how they find
1: out about you. Like, that is such a chance encounter. Right. And then he flew to New York. And as he was flying there, he was sitting next to Andy Samberg. That's how they met.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He said he remembers going up in the elevator with this guy who had tons of props. And I had no props. And I was like,
0: oh, my God, I should have brought pop- props. That was Andy Samberg. That's how I met Andy Samberg. And Andy said he was looking at me going, fuck, that guy doesn't need any props. <laughs>
1: There was a horrible audition story shared in the beginning of this um, part. Hold on. I didn't say it earlier, but I would like to read it because it just made me cringe, i my embarrassment, yeah. the whole ordeal. Um, <laughs> a few years ago, during a camera test in AH, this is Lindsay Shukas, the producer. Okay,
0: okay, okay. I was, I was like, wait, who is talking and what page are you on? This is
1: 528. Um, 28. Yeah, she dated Ben Affleck for a while. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. One of the men auditioning. With, oh, I can't read. One of the men auditioning went behind a flat they had set up on the side of the stage. Then he stepped out completely yes. naked with his hands between his legs. I think his idea was that he would step out to a roar of laughter and thunderous applause from all 15 of us in the room. Instead, the poor guy got a whole bunch of silence and a few scattered polite chuckles. He was just standing there holding his junk in Studio A H, in front of Lauren Michaels, you can imagine what an awkward few moments it was when he finished his audition. We're all sitting there waiting, checking our phones, watching the naked guy collect his props and costumes from all over the stage in silence. He was not hired.
0: <laughs> well, and I guess what's, well, obviously he was not hired, but I guess what's worse is that there's a chance that this is a comedian that we have seen and enjoyed, and only the fucking 15 people in that room and whoever they've told under promises of secrecy um, only they know who it is. So, I mean, it could be anyone. We all know how many people have auditioned for SNL.
1: Wow, that's fascinating to think about.
0: So, auditioning, it can go really well. It can go not well. But yeah, so Bill Hader auditions. He goes back to LA a week or two later. He gets a call. Uh, he, he got a manager. He was with her. She got a phone call and handed me the phone. It was Marcy Klein. She goes, you know you got hired, right? And I say, no. And she's like, oh, well, congratulations, you're hired. I thought, oh wow, she goes, you're going to fly up tomorrow to have this dinner with Lord. You're flying up with a guy named Andy Sandberg, but we don't know if we're going to hire him, so don't tell him anything. Don't tell him you're hired. So I sat next to Andy on this flight, and he's going, God, I wonder what's going to happen. And it was just crazy awkward, and I didn't know what to say. Uh, incidentally, on that plane in first class were Judd Apatow and Steve Carell flying to New York to do press for the 40-year-old Virgin. The flight got grounded at Dulles because of weather, and so all the passengers had to hang out. Andy and I were too shy to go over there and say hi to Steve Carell and Judd Apatow. We were like, wow, we just sat there and stared at them. And now Andy Samberg and Bill Hader are two of the biggest names in fucking stand-up comedy slash comedy, like, improv, SNL
1: lore, you know? Right, but that's such, like, a cute, honest quote. Like, everyone has to start kind of at the bottom, looking up at the Mm -hmm. role models. And so, yeah, then once Andy Samberg started on the show, uh, he came in with... Two writers who, um, Yorma and Akiva. Yeah, Yorma and Akiva, and they got to work on a lot of digital shorts. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, this was the start of the digital short. This, like, I am dating myself here, but I remember Lazy Sunday. It was literally the first time I used YouTube. I guess it's all gone downhill from there. Um... <laughs> Uh, they did the, their first little short was called the Bing Bong Brothers, which was a rap song that feels like someone's whispering sexual thoughts into your ear the entire time. It was just us singing about how we want women to look at us. We borrowed a video camera from Bill Hader's wife, who was working at film school. Like, okay, I'm glad this is a really, uh, this is a really high
1: budget, uh, operation they got going on. Hey, Bill, can we borrow your wife's camera? Right. They used Andy Samberg being a former film major to create these shorts, for sure. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And Yorma says that there's a lot more opportunity today to do something like that with just you and a camera and a mic and make something funny, as opposed to the early Albert Brooks films that needed a 35mm camera and a whole crew and editing for probably a week, as two people who have sat through Albert Brooks films from SNL can assure you these are better. A hundred percent. Yeah. Also... Something I found really interesting and kind of cute was that they would record the audio takes for all of these shorts in their little office, so like Justin Timberlake, Rihanna, Lady Gaga. It was like inviting someone to your college dorm, as I believe Yorma. Yeah, that was Yorma. Yeah, they made Lazy Sunday for the cost of cab fare.
1: Yeah, and then that really took off on YouTube, and mm-hmm. that, like you just said, like a lot of people discovered YouTube through searching out this sketch, you know, during the week. And then it became a way for them to, like, measure how each sketch played numbers-wise, you know?
0: Yeah. Lazy Sunday became popular. We garnered a lot of trust from Lorne. It allowed us to do whatever we wanted. Um, NBC had the classic NBC reaction. Sued YouTube. It was suddenly... This is Lauren. Suddenly on the front page of the business section, the Times, the startup called YouTube, was being sued by NBC... Uh, you know, you would think somebody would have gone, let's just buy this thing or figure it out. NBC announced very every, every NBC announced at every upfront some new digital strategy, but didn't have any strategy, obviously, and I wanted snl.com. I said it's idiotic. No kid goes to a corporate site and looks for a show, but they were so fierce about it. We're building our synergistic NBC.com. And so we weren't allowed to break away. We thought this would have been revolutionary. We would have been funny or die or whatever else there was, but they wanted a corporate identity. I do think it's interesting that they thought about branching out into just having, like, a website for the shorts and just kind of focusing on that.
1: It's a brilliant idea. Lauren clearly saw where entertainment was going and where you could gain a huge audience. But, yeah, you know, executives. (sighs) Silly little executives. Mm -hmm. Justin Timberlake
0: saying the show itself is a bunch of adults who act like children for a living. He's not wrong.
1: Yeah, Scott Johansson on page 556. She goes, I watched the show all the time growing up. We were big Saturday Night Live fans in the house, so it was a big family event. We all loved Phil Hartman a lot. We were big Phil Hartman fans. For us, it was something the kids could watch with the parents, and everybody loved it. That's the great thing about Saturday Night Live. I read that and I was like, "Holy shit! This woman like manifested her SNL husband." She fucking did. Like, I I'm not even mad. No, she deserves
0: it. Yeah. Although I do remember when they first got together, like the blind items and the things that were like, Scarlett Johansson was making out with Colin Jost at an SNL after party, and everybody was like, "What the fuck?" And now they're married and have a baby. So good for them.
1: Yeah, good for them. And then Julia Louis-Dreyfus came back to host, and she was actually the first female cast member to come back and host, which is wild. Right?
0: It's wild, especially because she is pretty candid about her time on SNL and how it wasn't the best time in her life. Yeah, so Julia Louis-Dreyfus says, "'Even though my time in the beginning there was pretty painful, "'I'm proud of my association with the show. "'I feel like I was in the trenches, "'and then to go back was just kind of a personal triumph, a happy one.'" That's hard to put into words. I think a lot of that is very gender-specific. I think women are better at getting along in a group, frankly, and there are a lot of really funny women in the cast, with Kristen and Maya and Amy and Tina. I'm not suggesting the men were hostile or aggressive or competitive with one another, mm, but I think there was a culture of friendliness there, and I cannot help but think it had sort of an osmosis effect, and I think it came from the ladies. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. If you're modeling the behavior that you want to see, and you're all friends with one another, then the guys are going to start feeling left out, therefore they're going to be friendly, and hey, look, now we have a cast that doesn't hate each other because of
1: gender. Woohoo! No, really, I mean, that's definitely why Julia Louis-Dreyfus did not have a 100% great time on the show, because at the time it was a man show. It's always claimed not to be, but it just, you know...
0: I mean, the the show's been out for 47 years, and it's only been within the past 15 that women have truly, I don't want to say made their mark, but it's not like there was a lot of strong female cast in the 80s or 90s. Not a group of them, at least.
1: Right. Um, But then they became really big, all the women in this period. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Um. No, and (laughs) they
0: talk about Rachel Dratch. She left SNL thinking she was going to get a major role in 30 Rock. But the 30 Rock gig fell through after the pilot was shot. And so, like, she left SNL thinking she had a job lined up and then nothing. So, that kind of sucks.
1: And she also seems to have, like, regretted leaving when she left. Um, Mm -hmm. She was like, I kind of wish I was able to stick around for a little longer. But back then, people left after their seven years, commonly. Which well, they left out, People yeah. stopped. They gave that up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was saying, yeah, that,
1: that is no longer a thing. It's commented that at the
0: happy other extreme, Daryl Hammond's talent stayed with the show for 14 seasons, a record. Keenan has blown through that. I'm sure somebody else is getting damn near close. Um,
1: oh, Keenan was also, um, he set a record in that I believe he was the first uh, like, cast member who was younger than the show? I think so. Yeah, good for him.
0: Yeah, and then, I mean, Tina Fey talks about how her daughter, her oldest daughter, was born in 2005, and she was in a development deal with NBC, Uh, she thought, I'm going to try to write this movie Mean Girls, I'm going to pitch a sitcom, and I'm going to try to get pregnant and we'll see what sticks, and all three things overlapped. My daughter was born in September, I got six weeks off, and then I went back a couple shows in, and I remember that season thinking, why am I here? I remember sitting at the table, at the read-through table, listening to someone else's sketch, you know, like the 28th sketch out of 40, and thinking, my baby is at home, I have to get out of here, I can't do this, why am I here? And I think this is something that a lot of cast members talk about when they know, as the Taylor Swift song says, they know when it's time to go. Um... And Bill Hader, I don't know if he talks about this in the book or if it's just in an article that I've read, but he did the 70, he came back for the 8th, and it was midway through the 8th where he's like, yeah, it's, I, I should have left. This is not, I think it was a Justin Bieber episode, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> that um, did it for him. <laughs> yeah. And Rachel Dratch, I mean, she says, I was supposed to go to 30 Rock and that, I hate talking about it. It was years ago and the whole thing changed. It was sad. Yeah, oh, this is what yeah, sorry. You uh, you must be ahead of me in pages. Anyway, Adam McKay was the head writer. Succession, uh Vice. He just did Damn. Don't Look Up. Yeah. Um, or at least he's he was he's a producer on Succession. Um Horatio sand saying, I told Lord if I don't get update, this will be my last show. Uh
1: okay. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, bye. <laughs> yeah, I. There's some Fred Armisen in this time. And oh, something that surprised me was that at this point in time, and Ken. Among? I'mong? I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm sorry if I butchered it. Uh, the toughest time for me is when a director leaves. You hope you have enough notice so you can get some possible candidates. To witness how the show is done, because there's no way to describe that without seeing it. There have been just four. Dave Wilson, Paul Miller, Beth, and Don. And the director, Don, I can't remember his last name at this point, but he just left in December.
1: They have a new director now. But there was a transition period, so. Oh, wow. Um, I also highlighted this area because he just talks about how they have this camera meeting that takes place a little bit after 11 o'clock on page 566, um... And, you know, they go in after dress, and Lauren comes down. No, I can't read. Yeah, he'll come downstairs, and he'll get his script with all the notes. No, and he'll get his book back. He doesn't know what's in the book yet. All he sees is a sea of post-its, and he has five anxious cameramen sitting in front of him who want to know what they're doing in that show. At this point we're closing in on 11 15 p.m that must be so i would literally be pissing myself <laughs> no for for to, to have to do and yes fine
0: so like between 10 30 and 11 30 yeah you have an hour but if lauren's not getting there um the lineup meeting takes place after dress it ends at 11 so you have half an hour to change shots and change okay this is how we're going to use this this is how we're going to do that. Post-its all over the floor as he rips them off the page, and there will be another young lady next to him who's taking away stuff that's already been given to him because there's even more changes. He's relaying these changes that he has to the cameraman who are wildly confident and comfortable people who absorb this like there's no tomorrow. Cue cards is a whole separate thing. Um, three sets of cue cards. I, everything in the short period of time, and that's before we get into the issue of timing, which will be with us all through the show, as uh, Ken sir ken says um sir but sorry i didn't want to say the last
1: name again yeah (laughs) um yeah and then we get seth myers yes seth myers on update uh yep and well
0: he talks about how he started as a cast member but he transitioned kind of to writing um and he was you know closer with the writers um the fact that I wasn't a credited writer, it was something that bothered me, especially because I was doing a lot of writing. And I think they do, you see it more now than I think we used to, because you see Mikey Day and Kyle Mooney and Cecily Strong, they're writing the sketches that it's, it's not just the writers anymore, they can kind of write and perform, which, you know, goes along with the whole,
1: you produce your own piece, but still. Yeah. And I think a writer can get at something that, you know, maybe an actor just doesn't see in the writing, because they don't know the Mm -hmm. inspiration necessarily, you know?
0: Yeah, and Seth says that the transition to Weekend Update was made easier by the fact that he was stepping in with Amy, who was his closest friend on the show, and the person he'd worked with the most up to that point. And Lauren is like, their first show, both of them, was 9-11. So welcome to Saturday Night Live. There's cops and port authority guys and firemen. The mayor had been working down at Ground Zero, who hadn't been anywhere but Ground Zero. Walked into the studio with a thousand-yard stare. I'm with Paul, Simon, who's doing the boxer. The mayor's there and all the rest. That's Amy and Seth's debut. I think they bonded really strongly at that. Oh, gee, you fucking think? It's two weeks after a national tragedy and they're at work. Yeah. like, that, that is not exactly, like, it's not like it was a normal SNL that night. It was, like, welcoming people back to Saturday Night Live in the wake of a huge tragedy. So, yeah, I'm gonna guess that's gonna make an imprint on your tenure
1: at SNL. Right. Experiencing that trauma with all these people, you know, that'll really do it for a, for a person.
0: Yeah. Seth says, As head writer, he had to spend much less time on update than on other things. Update joke writers worked on it the whole week, didn't check in on them until Friday, then I read through the jokes to see how good or bad shape we were in, then comes a bit more work. Sometimes I would write some of the update features and the test characters, as it were, 85, 80 to 85% of the work I did on the show was as a writer. Update was more like the cherry on, was more like the cherry on the cake, my reward. At least that's how I framed it for myself. You work all week trying to make sure everybody else's stuff is as good as it can be. And then you get this incredible piece of real estate where you get to tell jokes for 10 minutes. And it's true. You can tell the joy, like the sparkle in his eyes and Colin Joe's eyes and Michael Che's eyes. It's it's the reward. You get to go out there and just be yourself and funny.
1: Yeah, and he definitely, like, earned that, that reward every single week. Um, John Mulaney described sort of the writing room during Seth Meyers' reign as head writer, and it just sounds so, like, um, you know, community-centered and everyone's working on everything, which is definitely why this era had a lot of standout sketches.
0: Fred Armisen... Someone, uh, Ugh,
1: it? James uh, Donnie. Oh, God.
0: Yes. I would rather have Fred out there doing comedy than just about anybody I can think of, but I'm not sure having him do Obama was a smart casting move. Again, as someone who experienced this in real time, I agree. I was like, what the fuck are they doing? He, he's not Obama. It's You look at Fred Armisen, and you look, you look at your screen, and you're like, okay, that's Fred Armisen doing an Obama impression, which defeats the point of an impression. You should forget that it's someone doing it.
1: Yeah. And James Downey says, you know, anybody we picked who was already there was going to have to be playing out of position. Mm -hmm. That's one way to word it.
0: Yeah. I love Fred. I think he's a genius. I think he did the very best he could. By the way, he got better and better. In terms of the comedy of it, Fred squeezed every available drop out of that thing. By the fall, it was about Tina doing Sarah Palin more than it was about presidential candidates. Also true. Right. Tina,
1: that became a huge thing.
0: It did! I mean, literally, and I've said it on the podcast before, I've said it to a number of people. The first time I saw SNL, we were all in a band competition, and the rumors had been flying all week that Tina Fey was going to be doing Sarah Palin, because Sarah Palin was, like, named as John McCain's uh, V-candidate, like, the week before SNL premiered, maybe a week and a half, and we were all like, oh, is it going to happen? What are we going to see tonight? And we saw the iconic... Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Hillary Clinton, Sarah Palin sketch. Yeah, we had Dick in a Box.
1: We had Dick in a Box. We had MacGruber, um, which on page 575... Well, I just blew right over Dick in a Box. We could talk about that. I mean, we can talk about Dick in a
0: Box. Something else I have noted here is Will Farrell has the honor of being featured on two DVDs devoted to his sketches, but a best of is definitely a privilege and not a right. Kevin Nealon, for example, though a popular cast member for nine seasons, has no best of with his name on it. And in my notes, I have give Kevin Nealon an SNL DVD, damn it. And <laughs> that was written long before I saw Kevin Nealon do stand up, at which point I'm like, nah, he doesn't need one. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on from DVDs. <laughs> uh-huh. Truly, though. All right. Anyway, Dick in a Buck's.
1: Yeah, Yormar Tacone on uh, 573 say, said, and then it was concept Thursday night, start shooting Friday morning, lose Justin for a period of time, end shooting Friday night into Saturday morning, start editing Saturday morning, and keep editing till the moment it airs.
0: Okay, that just sounds fucking unpleasant. <laughs> As someone who edits and it doesn't take me, well, sometimes it takes me a couple of days, but you know, that's the ADHD and depression for you. Right. I, uh, yeah, I, like, I don't like editing not on a time crunch. Like, finishing the filming on Saturday morning and then editing your video for 12 hours sounds literally like my worst nightmare. Yeah, same. To be fair, I will say so. I, I like Dick in a Box, but I... It's a classic. Like, it's a classic. I like Mother Lover better, um... And I remember watching this live and just my jaw dropping at the cameos of Patricia Clarkson and Susan Sarandon. Okay, so the lineup for when Mother Lover came in, um, another sketch we had that week was called Ellis Island. It was about all these immigrants coming over and being dropped off on Ellis Island. It was a sketch where I played my great-great-great-great-grandfather and I said all these things about my great-great-great-great-grandson Justin. And at the end of the sketch for Ellis Island, Andy came on and played Moishe Samberg, who's Alex... I- Alex? Nope. Andy's great-great-great-great-grandfather, and he prophesied about how Andy, his great-great-great-great-grandson, and my great-great-grandson, would maybe someday work together. Who knows? They may make something usable. There were plenty of jokes within that. But the way the show order ran on live television, I don't think anyone had planned it. This live sketch went into the digital short. So you had a sketch where the end of that sketch connects to the next sketch, it's almost like we got 10 minutes of almost linear television. Uh, we were. This is Justin Timberlake. Um, I don't know how many times this has happened on the show, for if it had ever happened, but when we ended the Ellis Island sketch, I walked off, and Lauren was standing there, and he grabbed me, and he said, do you realize what just happened? I said, no. He said, you just did a sketch to introduce your next sketch within the sketch. He said, this is one of the most brilliant things to ever happen on the show. And in that moment, I realized that no one had really planned it. It was just kind of one of those serendipitous moments.
1: Couldn't have planned it better, literally. Yeah, the fuck? Because. Go ahead, sorry. I mean, I don't have anything else to say other than. No, but that's perfect. It's just like, if you had lined it up and
0: known you were lining it up, there would have been so many more obvious jokes and the yeah. subtlety of it. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Norma had the original idea from a Gruber, he kept pitching it to us. John Solomon and I were the other two people involved. We thought it sounded like a pretty dumb idea. We kept saying, "No, let's do something else." That was before.: and We time. literally Yeah. We literally just two weeks ago saw the return and radicalization of Magruber.
1: Yeah, And it's really yeah. telling to see how the first like time it was pitched. people didn't really receive it well.
0: No! They were saying, um, all Gorman would say was, I have this idea about this character called MacGruber. He's MacGyver's less talented brother. But that was it! You're thinking of sketch ideas, you're not thinking of short film ideas. Wasn't really into it, because it didn't make sense to me
1: as a sketch. You're fucking right. <laughs> then it turns into this whole, like, thing for Will Forte, and uh-huh. on page 577, he talks about how he can never thank Lauren enough, I just really, really love the man, because of how good he was and how he, you know.
0: He believed in all, he believes in all of them.
1: Right. Even though I, I didn't believe in that sketch myself.
0: No. Um, it got a total of ten sketches. Pepsi approached Lorne to do a Super Bowl commercial. He asked us, do you want to do this as a Super Bowl commercial? We'd already had an idea of doing a sketch where McGruber sells out. So a Pepsi commercial seemed very much in his wheelhouse. We wanted to do one where he was covered in NASCAR-esque jackets and every kind of Procter and Gamble logo. And it was like, yeah, we almost already wrote that for 16 hours. We shot one. So he, with Richard Dean Anderson's. He will be in the commercial. We shot another with Richard Dean Anderson that was just for the show. We weren't even sure that Pepsi would even want this. Um, just getting on the show was lucky. Making 10 of them felt lucky. And then getting it through to the stage where it aired in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl, it was a really close game and everyone was watching, it was great. Like, again, this was a fucking... Trash idea that Yorma kept being like, guys, let's do MacGyver's less talented brother. And everyone just kind of rolls their eyes. The first one's a hit, and then they just keep going. And now there's been fucking
1: 13 of them. And then Coke's less talented brother, Pepsi, takes it up.
0: (laughs) I agree with that.
1: Brian Williams talks about hosting and how he was, like, so nervous to host. He didn't really know, you know, if people would be able to take him seriously. He was like really hesitant to do it. He waited at least six months to actually accept the invitation to host. Um, did you think that long on lying about the Iraq war, sir? That's what I want to know.
0: <laughs> he talked to Tom Brokaw. He talked to Meredith Brokaw. Uh, he talked about how he was going to flush 27 years of harder nonfiction credibility by doing a comedy show. To be perfectly honest, I, I don't want to say this is the beginning of the end for Brian Williams, but I think he got a taste of this. He threw his name into the ring for hosting The Tonight Show before they picked... I can't fucking remember when, but... A while ago, he was like, Yeah, I think I can do it. Um, But he says, As a young kid on the Jersey Shore who rode away for tickets, ended up being at a show hosted by Broderick Crawford, who I was horrified to see taking oxygen during breaks. I believe it remains on Lauren's list of the top five all-time worst shows. Pretty sure we've recapped that one. Um, (laughs) But... Brian Williams went to Chevy Chase, told him his tale of woe, and said, I have a pending invite from Lauren to host the show. What's your opinion, if you don't mind me asking? And he said, well, I tell you, I was a religious Dan Rather viewer for over 20 years, and at the end of Dan's run, I was no closer to knowing who he was than at the start. I think you should do it, because people will see who you are. Factored into the decision, I'd been going on Jon Stewart's show. Back in the day, I went on Conan's. I'd been on Dave's show, but in the post-9-11 world, my day job had become so
1: serious. He wanted to be careful. Um, and he was really careful about the sketches that he let go, but the writer still had fun writing some, like, questionable things for him to read.
0: Yeah, there was a sketch about a sexual predator. Will Forte wrote it, played the sexual predator. I was actually going to be the straight man, and I was fine with it. Lauren cut it for time after dress rehearsal, and it has always bugged me that John Hamm played my part several shows later. He owes me. Sketches live forever, man. Even if Lauren kills it, they're going to try to bring it back. And I remember that sketch as well. It's like a Halloween sketch, and Will Forte is like going around the neighborhood telling parents he's a sex offender. It's 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 bad, but it's funny. And then you can uh, we completely skip the writer's strike. Um,
1: oh, I've, really? Oh, we did. Yeah, that was before, my Yeah.
0: Notes. <laughs> um. T- that's my page five seventy-seven to eighty-five. Are we even there? Yeah, maybe not. That. Well, okay, there was a writer's strike in uh, 2007-2008 from uh, November to February, and SNL was off the air. Some of the late-night hosts came back without their writers, and so they would just do, like, half an hour of what-the-fuck-ever if they had people out there. The interview was off the cuff. Um, I remember Conan O'Brien, this is back when he was still on late-night, he was like, you know, I've been here for 13 years, or however the fuck long. And I've looked at that catwalk above my stage every single night, and I want to know what's up there. And, like, he took a portable camera up there and just crawled around. Like, that was writer's strike content. (laughs) But it was must-see TV because you never knew what the fuck was going to happen. Like... This was there was like a fake feud in between John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, and Conan O'Brien, and they were all like running onto each other's sets and starting these faux fights, and then they all got together for a pre-tape. But it was it was fucking wild. Like I don't know that I hope we, I hope for the writers' sake we never see another writer strike, but for creativity's sake, I wouldn't mind it.
1: <laughs> yeah, Tina Fey talks about like how they all marched in the picket lines and she has this one quote on page 584 saying there was one down on wall street one day and i was like this is an exercise in insanity we were picketing but nobody was around and then she compares to the picket lines in la which sounds nuts
0: yeah um we then go into like the hillary obama thing and you can tell lauren was pissed um says we were contacted by i think howard wolfson from hillary's campaign we want they wanted to do the first show of the season obama was heating up but they called first so i said okay you have to play by those rules and then the week of they bailed she suddenly had to go do something and i went really you called us and we gave it to you i think every now and then i get carried away and think we actually do have influence and kind of go what and okay really lauren (laughs) And then after that, we put Obama on. The date when Hillary was supposed to be on. The sense of entitlement which was following her everywhere at that point peaked for me at the bailing. Asking for it, being accommodated, and then bailing on it in an election year. Um, if anything, Obama being on the show gave me air cover. Here's a guy from the nonfiction realm who's going to show this exposure with me. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm just like... Um, I feel you. <laughs> it's been so long since we've done one of these episodes. Seriously though, no. I used to be better about being like and on page whatever, but if you're following along while reading a podcast, I'd say I'd say get a life,
1: but <laughs> I've done it. So Done all sorts of things.
0: Yeah, um, Horatio Sands saying, I don't think the show itself has ever let its freak flag fly in the last 20 years. I think Lauren's very concerned with being neutral, so he wants to make fun of everyone.
1: He's taken a stance the past few years because, I mean, Jesus Christ, what's the other stance? Are we Nazis? Yeah, the past few years have made it kind of impossible to remain neutral. Even Taylor Swift had to come out and say what she was. Not gay, but, you know, Democrat. uh,
0: I fucking... (laughs) i i wish she would come out and say she was not straight oh but here we are it would just <laughs> well and the thing is is now everybody's fucking there was some writer for jezebels on the gaylor reddit page was like hey guys i'm doing an article on this website in this community and everybody in the comments is like don't fucking talk to her you you want to you want an engagement post quicker like the rumors were they were gonna split like, mid-January, and then all this shit about Taylor being gay heated up after Red came out and her I Bet You Think About Me music video, which is 100% a reimagining of her crashing Carly Clauss and Josh Kushner's wedding. So obvious. So obvious. It's so fucking She gives the scarf to the bride! She doesn't give it to the groom! What else does uh, it mean? Is, Nothing. She's gay. Yeah. Um, and I don't even care if she's not, like, she could be bi. That's totally fine. But there's no way that woman is straight. Like, she sets off so much, so many signs. She gave so many signs. Um, sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, seriously, this is how I feel. I also feel, I'm gonna say it right now, I feel like Sarah Sherman might be gay. You think? Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, hasn't she talked about it? Didn't she talk about it at the show you went to? No, I don't really think she did. I don't remember that well, though. I could have sworn you talked about her saying something about
1: gays in the room or something I cannot fucking remember, but I'm pretty sure. There was a lot of gay She's... talk when Alex English and Punky Johnson were on stage together. They Okay, maybe that's what yeah. I remember. <laughs> okay, well.
0: Could um...
1: fingers crossed it was her, like honestly.
0: <laughs> She's so pretty. She is. Yeah, and uh, Horatio San says that Lauren may be a little more conservative than he lets on He's prideful of the fact the show doesn't go 100% left Bash everything on the right I mean, they do bash people on the left too But what the fuck is there to bash when you have People tearing down the Capitol Literally. Um says, also, you have Jim Downey Who's basically the Karl Rove of SNL He's always writing the right wing sketches And honestly, I think a lot of times They're out of tune with the audience Lauren loves them, Downey's a great writer, brilliant But he's been, th- he's been there forever But I think Lauren leans... Sometimes leans too much on Downey and not enough on guys like Seth. Basically, in the last couple of years, it's been Seth going up against Downey to set the show's tone on politics. Now, obviously, these interviews were conducted before the um, 40th anniversary, I believe. Shit. Maybe these were done... When did the first book come out? 2002? 2003? I think the first book came out in 2003, so this is definitely in the second round of interviews. Anyway. um, Yeah, for the 40th season. Yeah. I remember the week that Nancy Pelosi was made speaker, the only thing we'd come up with at the time because she was from San Francisco to make her a dominatrix. I thought that was really, really cheap. It was just an example of why are we doing this sketch this week when fucking Bush is lying about this doing that doing this, doing that. It was frustrating. it continues to be frustrating. Uh, they're written like Downey wants to put this message out and I think that's kind of shitty. Well, Horatio Sands, I think you're kind of shitty too.
1: <laughs> yeah, no literally fuck the dominatrix nancy pelosi sketch not even i never seen it not funny um (laughs) but then robert Spingle talks about how in his last season he finally had some issues with standards over a tv funhouse that was meant to be about racism and profiling and it's essentially um i'll just read what how he describes it first Typical white Americans, then a Latino family, then a Japanese family, all being instructed about seatbelts, overhead compartments, etc. on an airplane. Then it cuts to an Arab man and the narrator says in Arabic, during the flight, please do not blow up the airplane. The United States is actually a humanitarian nation that is rooted in the concept of freedom and so on. Um, And he says that there are other ethnic groups stereotyped in this narration, but standards didn't like it. They got HR to tell him no. Um, And Lorne supported this so much that he showed it to Obama.
0: Yeah, saying that um when standards people freaked, Lord fought them, he liked it, felt it was defendable, and could withstand any outrage. Remember this was before hashtags. He ran it at dress and it got laughs. Standards pushed back hard. They even got someone at NBC Human Resources to condemn it. The next week I was there before dress rehearsal and Lauren said, I have a plan. Obama in the early stages of his campaign was doing a cameo in the cold open. Lauren told me he would show my sketch to Obama in his office. If Obama thinks it's okay, they won't be able to argue it. I just kind of stared blankly and said, okay. I mean, I thought it was a brilliant idea, except why would Obama ever give this thing his blessing? What if word got out? Hey, everybody, that guy over there said it was cool, the one running for president of the country. But I loved Lauren for caring this much and being willing to go that far to get this thing on TV. Anyway, there was nothing else for me to do, so I headed home and Lauren said to call it an hour. Warren says, I showed it to Obama, because if he had any discomfort with it, I didn't want it to appear. We went back to one of the dressing rooms and watched it. He said, it's funny, but no, I don't think so. I went
1: okay, so we took it off. And then Robert Smeagol expresses regret at the fact that he didn't stay to, to see... Smy- I thought I think it's Smeigle. Oh, it's my, Robert Smeigle. Um, I don't think it's Smeagol like Gollum. Th- I was literally but but I could thinking be of Gollum this entire time, so... <laughs> I mean, I could look this up on Please, YouTube, no, you're but definitely that's just right. gonna... No, <laughs>
0: Uh, I can't, I I I just I was like
1: Schmeigel. I'm like mm, I don't think so, Mr. Schmeigel. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, the strike is here. Oh boy. Well, oops. No, but I swear it was in my notes before this. So I think they mentioned Me it. Me too. A few t- they they as, must have. As we go out of order, so does the book. You know, nothing's perfect. Mm-hmm. It's no. an oral history. that's a lot to put together. Um, it is. I mean, fuck. We're <laughs> we're just reading it. We're not even the ones that had to organize
0: it. Yeah. <laughs> Strikes are always a killer. I've been through several. I remember the network wasn't sure we should come back at all, that we should just premiere again the following fall. Lauren fought really hard for us to come back on. It wasn't pleasant. Da-da-da. My last cartoon was The Obama Files. It was my, mostly my wife's idea. Halfway in, I remembered the ending might not be as much fun. I had Sharpton and Jackson falling through a trapdoor, landing in a community van with other political liabilities, including Bill Clinton, but then asked the driver to head for spring break. Relatively tame, but still, it's her husband.
1: Because they were showing it to her, war- right?
0: Oh, yes, 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 yes. She, yeah, the same show, Hillary, Hillary. made a cameo in the cold open. Yep. She was planning to leave right after, but Lauren liked the cartoon, asked her to hang around for 20 more minutes and watch to watch it. He introduced me to her. I was watching it in her dressing room. It was all fun and exciting. She was laughing a lot. Then about halfway in, I remember the ending might not be as much fun. It had Sharpton and Jackson falling through a trapdoor and landing in a community van with the other political liabilities, including Bill Clinton, who then asked the driver to head to spring break. Relatively tame, but still, it's her husband. Fortunately, Polar walked in just before then. Hillary still saw it and chuckled politely, but her focus was split and awkwardness was averted. Later, I saw Lauren, and the first thing out of his mouth was, I forgot about the Bill part. Yeah, me too, but she was totally cool about it. Or she was cool about it. And I assure you, the fact that it was my last cartoon is a total coincidence.
1: I love the anecdote about poor walking in just before that line. Like, I don't know, but I want to believe that she knew what was coming and she didn't want Hillary to have a horrible SNL experience.
0: Yeah. Then we talk about, okay, so now it's August of 2008. Um, uh, Tina Faces, I was on Fire Island with my husband, Jeff. It was funny because he had the cover of The Times that said, McCain picks running mate, and he he thought there was a resemblance. I said, I don't think so. It's just brown hair and glasses. But when we got back to the city, some cousins and old classmates were all saying, that lady looks like you. At that time, 30 Rock was not exactly highly rated, so no one even really knew I wasn't on SNL anymore. In fact, no one remembered I didn't even really do sketches when I was on, so everyone thought they had the same good idea, that I should play Sarah Palin. Uh, it's funny because I was sort of arrogantly in my own mind resisting it. Like, I don't want to play that. I don't know who's going to write it. What if I don't like what they wrote? People are going to think that I wrote it. And at some point I realized that like, oh, by the way, no one at SNL has actually asked me to do this. So I was like, right, this is a little argument I'm having in my own mind. Um, That's they don't really do. need me to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Same. Krista Wig could have cer- certainly, could certainly have done it with her eyes closed. It wasn't until late that week that Lauren called. Lauren Michaels. Right after the debate, I'm coming out of my building the next day and my doorman, Frank, says, Mr. Michaels, what a gift, did you see it last night? And I go, yeah. And he says, it's Tina Fey. And I go, no, Frank, she's not in the show anymore. She's doing her own series. I'm literally 30 feet away from my apartment and Bobby De Niro's there with his daughter. And he goes, what a gift. And then I realized this is what everybody was thinking. So I called Tina and I said, I think the audience is demanding that you do it. She said that Saturday was the only day she could get Oprah Winfrey to appear on 30 Rock, So she would filming all day with Oprah. She said, I can't do it. And I thought Kristen can do it. But later that night, we talked about it again. And Tina said, maybe we could rehearse for Friday night late and then I could just come for dress. And A, the fact that Lauren uh, feels comfortable calling Robert De Niro Bobby is (laughs) notable because Robert De Niro does not let anyone call him Bobby or Bob. So... But I first saw that, I was like, who is he talking
1: about? (laughs) Yup. But it was just a hit, having her play um, Sarah Palin. Yeah, James Downey pops back in saying, the performing's ultimately more important
0: than the writing. It's like, good pitching beats good hitting. Amy Poehler saying, you know who I think was most aware of how big that sketch was gonna be? It was my not-yet-born son, Archibald.
1: Archibald was in my stomach during that sketch doing flips. She was six to seven months pregnant! That's good for her you know couldn't be me good for her though she literally amy poehler powerhouse um <laughs> seth myers talks about how um the russia that i could see russia from my house line wasn't in the first mm-hmm. draft and how the way it was they would just you know pass around the sketch and let anybody look at it and let anybody pitch jokes and that's how they come up <laughs> with lines like that
0: Seems risky, but I, it seems like that may have happened this past week as um, there was a joke added between dress and air about panic is the sister of failure and Colin Jost saying <laughs> that's what Lauren said to us to get us to do a show in a blizzard. Um, but Lord Michael says that, her, that Tina Fey's performance as Sarah Palin, it was at least as powerful as strategery, which was a Will Ferrell, George Bush thing. You can see the perception changing completely, and it's in there, there have been those moments. It's Lovett as Dukakis going, I can't believe I'm losing to this guy, or Chevy as Gerald Ford going, I was told there would be no math, which, okay, I don't really like Chevy Chase, but that line is fucking gold. Iconic. Yeah. The audience that was suddenly watching Sarah Palin wasn't necessarily the SNL audience. Tina crossed over, it made her a huge star. Like truly, 30 Rocks first season, I this is
1: probably blasphemy, but it was not good. I only watched a few episodes, and I didn't really enjoy any of them. Uh, it, I'd say you could probably like
0: read a recap of season one and start with season two. And seasons like two through five are fucking great. Like two through four, two through five, amazing. But season one, I watched it. I'm like, why is everyone ranting about this show?
1: Yeah, something about some of the jokes in season one does not. Sit right with me. Miss <laughs> Palin herself came to SNL, and Michael was talking about how Tina was terrified of making it look like an endorsement, which I would be too. The fuck?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, no, I, I, I would technically, like, oh, haha, I've been mocking you, but here I am standing next to you. It feels like you're giving the go-ahead. Um, she was in the cold open. She started backstage. They, they said, oh, uh, we should start her backstage, you know, with Alex, so the crowd won't boo. She had just been booted a hockey game in Philly, and I thought we had to be cautious. I mean... Smart. Yeah! <laughs> Tina was terrified of anything, um... Uh, da, da. Sarah Palin had wonderful manners. It was that pageant winner thing. Like, if there were young girls around, she'd spend time. She'd ask questions. It was her daughter's 16th birthday. I wonder if her daughter, Bristol, was pregnant at that point. Okay, that's not nice. I should stop.
1: Well, that's just a genuine curious... Like, I don't think that's... I mean, she was pregnant. Yeah. Like, that's not... It's not not nice to acknowledge somebody's pregnant. Unless they well, don't that, want to that, be? That, I don't that's know. I that's
0: right. No, no, well, I, I, I think she was because she was pregnant at the RNC and apparently... Uh, she didn't tell her mother until after she had been named McCain's person that she was pregnant. Yeah, because I remember when it broke and everybody was like, what the fuck? Uh, Sarah Palin did prove herself a good sport later in the evening. She joined Seth Meyers at the update desk saying she decided not to do a planned rap number because it might cross the line. But it was like Amy Poehler was like fucking ready to pop at any minute and she did the rap from the perspective of Sarah Palin and... I assume you've seen it. If not, it's coming to you in like 10, 15 minutes.
1: Oh yeah, I've seen that. (laughs) Okay, good. Um,
0: Sarah Palin saying, I know they portrayed me as an idiot and I hated that and I wanted to come on the show and counter some of that. Honey, you are an
1: idiot. Yeah, right? Like, how are you going to counter it? She seems to have been really nice, though, like, when she was there.
0: Yeah, everyone says she was really nice. I mean, being nice and being stupid are not, like, mutual. Like, you can be both. Um, but Sarah Palin, it was really sweet, because on page 593, she said, I've been a fan, and my siblings have been fans of the show since we were quite young. We used to sneak into our TV room so we could watch SNL, because our parents thought, or appropriately believed, that it was not such a positive thing to be watching. Well, fuck you, it was. Um, but we snuck into our TV room so we could watch the show. So having an opportunity during the campaign to be on the show was awesome. It was a blast. Good for her.
1: I thought that... She was quoted somewhere talking about how, like, she watched it, but, like, she didn't... Like, as a kid, they were like, oh, yeah, on page 595. Um, I'm a testimony to that because uh, I don't... Okay, I'm just gonna start with the beginning. (laughs) Sarah Palin, page 595. I think SNL is egotistical if they believe that it was truly an effect on maybe the public debate about who should lead the country in the next four years. I don't believe that it was that impacting, but certainly it was impacting for a segment of our culture, and I'm a testimony to that, because growing up, again, with my siblings, we did tune into SNL, and we did listen to what it was that they were saying in regards to cultural cultural or political or societal jokes, not so much influenced by them, but certainly opening our minds to whatever it was that SNL was trying to portray. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> that sentence means that you saw differing political
0: views on SNL, and therefore you remember it, and therefore it made an impact. So, Literally. you're contradicting your own fucking point there, honey. No, she um, really contradicts herself on the page
1: before, too, because she's talking about how... Um, mm-hmm. she How important she, the show was to yeah. her and her siblings. Well, no, also on page 594, um, she was talking about... Oh, she,
0: she's there, too.
1: Yeah, right, like, it's Sarah Palin, Sarah that she, she, she keeps talking. Um, she says um another thing that's significant here is that snl is able to kind of ratchet down what the debate is to a level that is culturally relevant and that's important and quite significant so it's important to again get on the show disarm them if you can and play along with it in order to ultimately get your message out there so she knows yeah she knows
0: she's contradicting herself back and forth because she's saying that okay you have to go and play along if you want to yeah okay um Horatio Sands is back saying, and this talks about kind of the blurring of the lines between political figures and impressions. Uh, He says, I always felt kind of bad, I always kind of felt bad when Will Ferrell did his Bush impression because he was such a good old boy that you didn't really, you really didn't think, oh, this evil little rich prick whose dad and his friends got him an office. You thought, oh, he's just a good old guy I'd like to drink a beer with. The audience as a whole, the whole country would probably see that as, oh, I like Bush because he's Will. If Will hadn't done that impression or at least made him likable, it may have tipped the other way. I honestly think so. We made up for it. I think Tina's impression basically killed Sarah Palin. I think that helped
1: get rid of Sarah Palin. <sighs> I think so, too. She really eclipsed Sarah Palin in being Sarah Palin, honestly. Yeah. And
0: then, okay, so after Sarah Palin, and I love how James Andrew Miller and Tom Shales, the people who compiled this these interviews in this book... Um, how they put, they structure the differing viewpoints one right after another. Because you have Seth Meyers saying McCain came on and played himself, and Tina played Sarah Palin. They were standing out there next to each other. It was a surreal moment I can remember on SNL. Between SN remember between Dress and Air, we added Cindy McCain, who was wonderful. It's a really fun night. And when we're talking about a good sport, I think it's hard to find one better than John McCain. Immediately followed by John McCain saying. During the campaign itself, I would argue that Saturday Night Live has as much impact on younger Americans as any other aspect of a political campaign. There we go. Stop trying to deny it, Sarah. SNL tanked your career.
1: Yeah. The career that, thank god, didn't happen. Fuck, right? Just some other crazy shit happened in this country. Whatever.
0: Well, and, Lord, I mean, again, John McCain's episode of SNL is actually a fairly good episode. Um, and John McCain says one of the highlights, frankly, of my political career was when I was able to host Saturday Night Live, and so when Lorne asked me back, I was really happy to do it. People still come up to me and talk about it. Not anymore, because he died, but when he was alive. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm just, I, I am,
1: uh, I ain't on it tonight. For real, though, like, the ability to be neutral died with him, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Seth Meyers saying, I don't think any one of us went into it feeling we were going to top... Oh, 2012 I'm happy with. I feel like we executed it with what we had to deal with, but I don't think any one of us went into it feeling we were going to top 2008. There's no fucking way. Impossible. And then Sarah Palin saying, If I ran into Tina Fey again today, I would say, You need to at least pay for my kids' braces or something from all the money that you made off of pretending that you're me. My goodness, you capitalized on that. Can't you contribute a little bit? Jeez. All the money she made? I'm sorry. She was what? Sarah Palin on four different SNL episodes? It's not like she made a movie about you. No, literally.
1: Amy Poehler um, was talking about how she was pregnant and she thought she had some sort of control over when the baby would come. I would also think that if I was pregnant, um, mm-hmm. but obviously it didn't work out that way, and they needed people to fill in for her last minute. And this is how I found out that Elizabeth Moss and Fred Armisen were married. The fuck?
0: Okay, so. I mean, I think we've talked about this prior, but, um, Elizabeth Moss and Fred Armisen were married for a little over or a little under a year, and the only thing Elizabeth Moss has ever said about her marriage to Fred Armisen is that she says, uh, Fred is great at doing impressions, and the best one he does is that of a normal person.
1: Oh my fucking god. Yeah, so... He got wrecked by a Scientologist. Yes, he did. (laughs) Christ.
0: Yeah, she said she felt, uh, Amy Poehler felt so much love from her job, um, I texted Mike Shoemaker and Seth in the middle of the night and said, I'm not gonna make the show tomorrow, um, and then that was a night where Seth had to do update for the first, alone for the first time, I held my newborn son in my arms as I watched Maya and Keenan sing a song to me and him. Seth tapped on the update desk, which he does now pretty regularly out of a lovely habit, and I felt it was one of those really incredibly moving moments where all these moments in my life were happening at the same time, and I felt my heart crack open. It was love with a capital L all over there, getting it, receiving it, feeling it, seeing this little person, my first son, and seeing the people I loved so much at my job. It felt very real to me and is very real to me. I treasure the love and relationships that I have there and continue to have because of that
1: job. That's a beautiful quote. I love that.
0: It really is. Uh, We have Abby Elliott join the cast, and she was the first third-generation cast member. Her father, Chris Elliott, was a cast member, and I believe her grandfather, Bill? Uh, Then we have uh, 21, the youngest female. It was a shock to her system. Akiva from Lonely Island said, With jizz in my pants, we thought the word jizz was filthy. It was really, really dirty, and there was no way it could ever air. Friday night around nine, we were like, Lauren, we have this video. We have a rough cut here. We can't figure out how to make it clean. Usually Lauren would see our videos for the very first time in dress rehearsal. Then if he had a note afterwards, he would give it to us. We would do a quick edit in between dress and air. In this case, we showed it to him on Friday. We knew it was funny, but we couldn't figure out how to make a clean version. And we wanted to show it to him in case he had ideas or anything and that we were going to work on it through the next week. He said, this is for next week's show. I said, here it is. We played him the dirty version. And he said, I think we could air that. We were shocked. We were very shocked. And then we went all the way up to Jeff Zucker. Didn't he just, like,
1: leave his job today at CNN? Today? Yeah. I don't know. I've been too busy fighting for my life to get paid the money that I deserve for my job. <laughs> uh,
0: yes, Jeff Zucker was the president of CNN. He resigned after a relationship with a top executive. Hmm. You know, he headed NBC, and then he was in disgrace, and then he headed CNN, and now he's leaving in disgrace. <laughs> noticing a pattern? <laughs> So we went all the way up to Jeff Zucker, who happened to be at the show that night. He watched it and said, yeah, you can air that after 1230. So it aired at 1245, as is, which shocked me because I thought jizz was a much dirtier word than dick. And dick, they bleeped out. So yeah, that's, I don't think I've ever said that word so many times in a short span of time.
1: This is a fun fact. The type of music in Star Wars is actually called jizz. Like, you know the cantina band? That's uh-huh. Cool. Yeah. learned that from my first boyfriend.
0: Oh. I See, I found out about that like a month ago. And then I just proceeded to read a bunch of memes about it, so... Yeah, Fred and Kristen and Forte expanded to Sandberg and Bill Hader and the rest. This is Robert Smigel. You had people had Amy you still had people like Amy and Maya for a hunk at this time. They were great performers and they were all writers. Seth really let the cast blossom and wrote funny, smart stuff on top of it. I feel like it should be looked at as a golden era, but I don't know if it gets that's credit. If it gets that credit. Maybe it's because of the Shadow of Feral they had to follow the greatest cast member ever. There's certainly a lot of people who have come through SNL who are so supremely talented and didn't quite maybe get to scratch the edge the way they did through other jobs. It's a combination of a lot of things. And that's Amy Poehler. Uh, oh, Fred Armisen's... Oh, shit, I'm going to run out of time. God damn it. I know, I'm looking. Okay. I'm like,
1: oh my God, this is a long episode. Okay. <laughs>
0: um, David Patterson, Fred Armisen's impression of him. Uh, Patterson had taken over as governor after Spitzer's sex scandals, immediately confessed in great detail to uh, committing adultery. We put him at the celebrity phone bank. While our jokes mostly focused on his eagerness to share TMI, we couldn't resist having him speaking into a stapler instead of a phone. SNL took it way farther with greater success. They made him a complete funny regular character. After all the support i received from SNL, it was nice we could return the favor even a little bit, much better than the gift bag. We have John Mulaney, uh, oh. Fred, this, uh, the... Rob Klein, Colin Jost, and John Mulaney wrote an update feature. Where Fred played Governor David Patterson, the governor in New York. Fred happened to look identical to David Patterson when he put in the beard. Fred slid out to the update desk from off stage on a swivel chair, but he kept sliding, going past Seth, Lauren, Mike Shoemaker. Everyone laughed so goddamn hard. It was pretty insane to see Lauren laugh that hard.
1: Wait, did you mention that um, Peterson was blind?
0: Oh, well, okay, Patterson yes. Well, you see, <laughs> I, I, Patterson, yeah. I, I know he was blind because I lived through this. Yes, this man was blind. So he rolled past him. Uh, we were all into the bleacher after Shoemaker ran over said, so not a bit, bad way to end this first year. It was pretty cool to see, see Lauren falling all over himself laughing.
1: That's a really sweet experience for John Mulaney. Truly! Um, shit, we are wrapping up. Um, do you have anything <laughs> else? Uh, um, the only other thing in this section that I wanted to talk about was Paula Pell. She, um, on page 604, talks about how she was a casual pot smoker, and so she bought a little bit from somebody at work. Um, But she's, like, super Mm -hmm. slow, which is how I used to be. Like, it would take weeks and months to go through a little bit. And um, then Mike Shoemaker came and asked her for pop because he thought that she was the drug connection at SNL, which is not the case. If I'm
0: the connection, the drug connection at SNL now, then it has fallen very far. (laughs) Um, And so I thought that was funny. But um, you can find us everywhere, all podcast platforms. We're on the social medias. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review at satellite high pod on Twitter. Ah, I'm running out of recording time. I'm Gilda, happy highs. I'm still happy highs.